In study 11, then, we are continuing our exploration of what Paul has to say about various problematic issues that were affecting the church. And in study 10, our previous study, we saw how he tackled the issues of maturity and humility, unity and diversity, food and freedom, poverty and generosity, false teaching, and discipline and restoration. And now we come to the issue of proper conduct, proper conduct in the church. You see, Paul's very concerned that when the church congregation comes together to worship, that everything should be done in an orderly manner, an orderly manner. Now, this was not happening in certain churches, but particularly in Corinth, where there was disorder, there was even chaos in their public meetings. For example, some of the women were taking their newfound freedom in Christ too far. There was chaos as the gifts of the Spirit were being manifested, and the Lord's Supper was not being observed in the proper way. So Paul writes to the Corinthians on these matters to try and sort out what is going on and what is going wrong explaining the spiritual principles behind his remarks, which seem to have been based on what was common practice and custom in the churches anyway. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 11:16, quote, If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, he's saying, what I'm writing to you in Corinth is not Corinth-specific, it's happening right across the churches. It's just they're doing it and you're not. So you need to get that sorted out. You see, Paul's overriding desire in all this is that everything that happens in their church meetings should bring glory to God. Look at chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, verse 31. He wants everything to be sure that everything that's said and done brings glory to God. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, you might like to turn to, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16, Paul speaks about women covering their heads. Speaks about women covering their heads. Now, what we have to understand is this, that the society of Paul's day was very strict about its women. Very strict indeed. They all had to have long hair, and wear a head covering when they were out in public. The only women who flouted this convention, in other words, not wearing anything on their heads and cutting their hair short, or in some cases, even shaving their hair off completely, the only women that flouted that convention were the temple prostitutes and the sexually promiscuous. By their dress and their demeanor, they clearly demonstrated exactly what they were offering. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that for Christians, this is not just a cultural, but it's, there's a spiritual aspect of this as well. The long hair and head covering are symbols which publicly acknowledge and honor God's created order according to Genesis chapter 2. So he writes in verses 7 to 11, and I quote, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man, for man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head. End of quote. Therefore, to flout this requirement, when coming before God in worship, in prayer, or when bringing a prophecy, Paul argues, is to dishonor God and tantamount to blasphemy. Verse 5, he writes, quote, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. End of quote. Now, apparently some Christian women were actually worshiping with their heads uncovered as an expression of their equality and freedom in Christ. And Paul's pointing out to them that this is going too far. 
This is going too far. Verse 6, I quote, For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, which of course it was in that society, only certain kind of women did that, sending that kind of message, continuing the quote, then she should cover her head, unquote. You see, not to do this, not to cover your head, could also have the unfortunate cultural effect of sending the message to the rest of society that Christian women's newfound freedom applied to their sexual morality as well because they didn't cover their heads and they didn't wear long hair. Now, once again, Paul wants women to be gracious in this matter and to show their submission to their husbands rather than implying by their lack of a head covering that they no longer honoured and respected them. Because that's what it said in society. I have no husband. If I have a husband, I don't respect or honour him. That's what it said if you didn't wear a head covering and you didn't have long hair. However, Paul did acknowledge that Christian husband-wife relationships are as much about partnership as they are about submission. So in verses 11 to 12, he writes, quote, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. End of quote. And in contrast to the marriage relationships of his day, Paul sees equality and mutual dependence as key elements in this marriage partnership. And we looked at that in some detail back in study nine. Now, in the light of what he's laid out before them, Paul is convinced that there's only one possible answer to his question, although he does seem to leave the option open in verse 13, as he says, and I quote, judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That's the question. In the society in which he lived, with the conventions that it had, there were cultural reasons for doing it, because it would be sending the wrong message if they didn't, and there were spiritual reasons for doing it, which was to honour God's creation and the way God had ordered things, although he did Underline the fact that independence and partnership is what marriage is all about. Importantly, Paul makes it clear that just it is just as improper for a man to flout the cultural convention of his day by having long hair and covering his head, both in society and in the church. So he's not just getting at women. He's saying, look, guys, we've got to conform in this. Us, we're going to be sending the wrong signals out there. Okay, this is what he's talking about. And in verse 4 and 14, still in 1 Corinthians 11, we read, and I quote, every man, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. That is, he's dishonoring Christ. Does not the very nature of things teach you, verse 14, that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. Okay, so again, see the cultural relevance and importance of this. Now, interestingly, not covering his head in church would have meant a complete change for Paul, wouldn't it? Remember, Paul was a devout Jew, and he'd have been used to wearing a cap on his head when he prayed. And now he's saying, we don't cover our heads. Now, still today, this matter divides opinion in the church, as you'll know as well as I do. Since Paul referred to the order of creation, if you look back at verses 7, 8, and 9, some believe that his directive stands for all time. So women should always wear a head covering. I was brought up in a church where that was taught. All the women wore something on their heads. I can't say all the women had long hair, but all the women wore something on their heads and there were even scarves by the door if they forgot their head covering so that they could borrow a scarf and put it on their head right so some churches actually do that and others go even further than that they also require women to submit to the authority of their husbands as their head as it says 
back in verse 3. So some still believe that directive is still pertinent and important today. Still others take the view that Paul's directives have to be seen in terms of the culture and context of his day and that we can make up our own minds. Look back at verse 13. Therefore, in societies where it is now no longer a disgrace for a woman to have short hair or cover her head, like ours, these conventions need no longer be followed. Look at the end of verse 6. See, remember, Paul wasn't writing about future generations because he thought Christ would return within his generation. So he wasn't thinking about how we'd be in 2019. Okay? He was focused on the culture of his day and what needed to happen in the church in relation to that. So that's the issue about women covering their heads and having long hair. So what was the situation with regard to worship then? Well, worship in the Corinthian church was clearly a vibrant experience and the people were very enthusiastic. And if you turn to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, you'll see how enthusiastic they were because Paul talks about it. And he says, and I quote, When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Unquote. Unfortunately, what should have been bringing blessing and edification to the church was instead causing confusion and chaos. This was mainly due to the exhibitionist mentality that seems to have permeated the church in Corinth. People were interrupting one another, believing that their contribution was more significant or more important than the person who was already in full flow, with the tongue speakers causing the most trouble. And in our next study, we'll be looking at that in more detail. Now, Paul sought to address the situation by telling the Corinthians that everything that takes place during their worship times must be done in order to edify the congregation. This is the litmus test, if you like. Is this edifying? Is this building up the congregation? It wasn't. It was just causing confusion and chaos because people, there were too many exhibitionists in the church. And in chapter 14, end of verse 26, he says, quote, all of these must be done for the strengthening of the church, end of quote. And for that to have any chance of happening, look down at verse 40 of chapter 14, quote, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Now, again, reflecting what was customary in the church as a whole, Paul says that women should keep quiet during public meetings. So still in chapter 14, going back to the end of verse 33 through to 35, we read these words. As in all congregations of the saints, in other words, all churches, not just in Corinth, as in all congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, must, but must be in submission. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. And... Going on to 1 Timothy 2.11, I quote, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, Paul can't be forbidding women to speak in church meetings altogether. He can't be, because he's previously said that they can pray and they can bring a prophecy. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 11 and 5. So that can't be what he's getting at. The context of this command, and how often do we have to come back to the word context? People will read these things and take them at face value and make all sorts of complaints and noise about some of this, and they don't look into it. They don't look into the background and the context. They just go off half cook about the subject. 
I've heard it many, many times down the years. Now, the context of this command for women to remain silent would suggest that some of them were creating disorder during worship by asking their husbands questions about what was going on, possibly having to shout to make themselves heard and perhaps even causing arguments. Now, the home, then, was the most suitable place for such discussions to take place. He's not saying you shouldn't ask the questions, but to preserve order in the church, it's more convenient if this happens at home, otherwise it just multiplies the chaos. It seems likely that women were not normally allowed to speak in any public meetings in society. So if women went to public meetings, they had to keep quiet there. So it wasn't something different. It was what was happening in society. You see, because Paul, again, is anxious that behaviour in the church should reflect the customs of the day. Why? And we come back to this again and again in our studies. In order that the gospel may not be brought into disrepute or maligned. This is what troubles Paul, you see. He doesn't want the gospel to be brought into disrepute or maligned by what's going on in the church. Yes, men and women are equal. Yes, there's freedom. But we've got to be careful how we're doing this, that we're not sending the wrong messages and thereby turning people away from the gospel. Oh, if that's the way they behave, we want nothing to do with it. Now, some would argue that Paul's instruction that women must remain silent in church meetings still applies today and that one's culture is irrelevant. I have been in churches where that has been laid down. Others would maintain that if it's not disgraceful, is the word Paul uses, and it's the same word here, interestingly, when he's talking about this issue as he used over the head covering issue, if it's not disgraceful for women to have their say in the society in which they live, then both men and women are at liberty to be fully involved in church meetings in an orderly and culturally acceptable way. So like in our society, there is no ban on women speaking at meetings. So therefore, people, some people would say they're in the church, it should be the same because of how we organise our culture. Again, Paul wasn't writing for the church in centuries to come because there wasn't going to be one. Now what about women teaching and women in leadership then in the church? Having written to Timothy in Ephesus about how women should dress, I don't know if you remember that back in study eight, what I called the glamour stakes, how women should dress, Paul goes on to raise the subject of women teaching publicly and being in, legion, uh, in, being in leadership, and this is what he says in 1 Timothy 2.12. Quote, I, key word, I, do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So as far as Paul's concerned, that's what he does. This is not a blanket ban, by the way, on women teaching in any capacity or situation at all. For example, Paul instructs the older women to teach the younger women in Titus 2, 3 to 4. Timothy was taught at home by his mother and grandmother. See 2 Timothy 1.5 and 3.15. Priscilla, along with her husband Aquila, instructed Apollos in the privacy of their home. See Acts 18.24-28. And we looked at that when we were doing study two. The example of Priscilla shows that Paul had no problems with a godly woman teaching a man in private. But in public, it was a different matter. Now, some say that here Paul is just addressing a specific problem in Ephesus. All right, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a young pastor who needs all the support he can get. There's problems in Ephesus that are being caused by some of the women there. There's a group of women who are not properly instructed in the true doctrines of the faith who are lording it over the church. 
and causing confusion by their false teaching. Interestingly, the church in Thyatira, which is some 80 miles north of Ephesus, suffered from the overriding influence of one particular false teacher who's referred to in Revelation 2.20 as, and I'm sure you'll know this quote, that woman Jezebel. That woman Jezebel. You see, we have, get this fixed in our mind, that false apostles were always men. No, they weren't. Women were at it as well. Women are equally able to lead people astray as men are, let me tell you. And this was happening in the church. And some are saying it was happening in Ephesus. And therefore, Paul's saying to Timothy, get a handle on this. Don't let it happen. Silence them. Talking about that woman Jezebel, therefore Eve's deception, if you look at 1 Timothy 2.14, symbolizes the false teaching of these women which had to be dealt with. So when he talks about Eve's deception, that's what he means. He means the women false teachers. Others say Paul never allowed women, properly instructed or not, to teach publicly. The phrase, quote, ought to have authority over a man, end of quote, seems to indicate that women were not allowed to become overseers, elders, in the church either. As in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 10, which I've explained earlier this evening, Paul bases his reasoning for this on the created order of Adam formed first, followed by Eve, and their fall into sin. And look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 to 14. However, here's something to get really clear. That Paul himself is clear that priority in no way means superiority. After all, man and woman were both created in the image of God. So the issue is about not who's superior to whom, but the issue is about authority. And of course, you have to remember... In those days, women did not teach publicly in society. So again, you're back to the cultural thing and messages being sent out. If women were lording and ruling the roost in the church, people would be saying, certainly all the men, I'm not interested in this gospel. Well, what happens? Right? It's social upheaval. It can't be allowed. So women didn't teach publicly in society nor did they do so in Judaism. You don't read about female rabbis. The rabbis were all men. And remember that Christianity came out of Judaism. And here's another interesting thing to bear in mind on this topic. Jesus himself conformed to the custom of the day by not appointing women apostles. There are no women apostles. Jesus didn't appoint any. Although he went as far as he could, culturally speaking, by including them in his entourage and benefiting from their ministry. Look at Luke 8, verses 1 to 3. So, some would maintain then that this principle of women not teaching in public or being elders is timeless and not subject to cultural changes. I have been in churches that take that view. Others would take the view that this is another example of Paul's teaching on a subject being culturally conditioned and therefore it's not applicable in societies where women are free to speak publicly and they are free to hold positions of authority in for example the sort of society that we live in now Paul points out that women do have the special capacity and ministry of being a wife and mother giving birth to children and by implication caring for them and being an example to them so I'm quoting 1 Timothy 2:15. but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith love and holiness with propriety end of quote now that could be seen as really patronizing but more likely Paul is praising women's ministry in the home not belittling it it's clear that Paul appreciated and greatly valued the huge contributions made to the growth and development of the church 
by the multifaceted ministry of godly, devoted women. These included Lydia, Priscilla, and godly women in the churches at Berea and Thessalonica. Look at Acts 16, 14 and the following verses. Acts 18, 1 to 3. Acts 17, verses 4 and 12. Remember how in Romans 16, Paul sent greetings to at least eight women appreciating their hard work in the church and their hard work for the Lord. And he begins that chapter by speaking in glowing terms about Phoebe. Phoebe was a deaconess in her local church. And it was she who was given the responsibility, not one of the male deacons, but Phoebe was given the responsibility of delivering his letter to the Romans, taking it from Corinth where he wrote it to Rome. And it would appear that many women brought their husbands to Christ and then led group meetings in their homes, thus playing a significant part in establishing the church in their area. Now, let's try and summarize this a bit. Paul's pronouncements about women have proved to be contentious in some quarters, to say the least. You've all heard it. There are those who believe they are evidence that Paul was anti-women, a male chauvinist, even a misogynist, shown by his patronising attitude towards them. After all, it's often asked, what could he possibly know about women, being a confirmed bachelor himself? Others are of the opinion that nothing could be further from the truth. After all, Paul did have a mother and at least one sister, if you look at Acts 23, 16, so he wouldn't have been entirely ignorant of the female point of view. As we've already seen, Paul's teachings liberated women. Didn't enslave them. Paul's teachings liberated them and gave them a status and a respect denied them in the culture of the times. And that came up a lot when we did studies eight and nine about relationships. The problem seems to be that this falls short of today's expectations of equality for women. But should this be surprising when we remember the sort of attitudes and values that permeated the society and culture of Paul's day, which we've already noted in previous studies? It could also be said that Paul went as far as he possibly could, given the cultural constraints, expectations and attitudes of the time, to raise and value and the prestige of women in society without causing harm, obstacles or detriment to the gospel message being preached in the process. Christian women of the time would have understood perfectly the whole situation with regard to themselves, namely being equal with men in all respects in the sight of God but not as far as society was concerned. And it's to their great credit that they appear to have accepted this graciously and to have complied with Paul's plea that they live their lives in the culturally expected manner, quote, so that no one will malign the word of God, unquote. Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. This is a key phrase to remember when studying and applying Paul's teachings because it reminds us of his mindset, namely that the spreading of the gospel trumps any other consideration there might be in our lives or in society because Jesus is coming soon. And as we've already noted back in studies eight and nine, Paul broadens this out to include everybody's lifestyle so that, and I quote, those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us they have nothing bad to say about us end of quote Titus chapter 2 and verse 8 now let's move on to the issue of proper conduct at the Lord's Supper and we'll be looking at our key references here our 1 Corinthians 10 14 to 22 and 1 Corinthians 11 17 to 33. 
proper conduct at the Lord's Supper. You may have thought, well, what on earth are they doing? You know, how could there possibly be an issue about conduct at the Lord's Supper? You come out, you take the bread, you take the cup, you go back and sit down. What could go wrong there? Well, it wasn't quite as simple as that, you see. What we have to start off by remembering is this. Many of the Christians in Corinth had come from a background of paganism and idolatry. The city was filled with temples to pagan deities, including Apollo and Aphrodite, and some Christians were tempted to return to their old ways or to be involved in both church and temple. So that kind of had a dualism in their lives. Christianity and idolatry, which is why in chapter 10, verse 14, Paul urges them to, and I quote, flee from idolatry. End of quote. Flee from idolatry. In other words, you can't do the both. Flee <laughs> from idolatry. Focus on your new Christian faith. And he reminds them of what they are doing when they take the bread and drink from the cup. In verse 16, quote, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So Paul leaves them in no doubt that they must therefore make a choice. They must make a choice between celebrating the Lord's Supper or participating in the worship of idols and the demonic forces behind them. There can be no compromise. Look at verse 21. Quote, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. A choice has to be made. You've got to make a break with your old lifestyle. You can't have a halfway house. You can't compromise. You have to make the choice. And then there was the problem of disorder when the Corinthians came together to participate in the Lord's Supper, which led to it being abused. You see, in the early church, the agape feast or the love feast was held in conjunction with the Lord's Supper. From the beginning of the church, it was customary for believers to eat together. See Acts 2, 42 and 46. And that coming together to eat became known as the love feast. That's what it was called, the love feast. Because its main emphasis was to show love for one another through sharing food and fellowship. And sharing the Lord's Supper together seems to become, have become the climax of the occasion. So you get in the picture. They meet and have a shared lunch, if you like, and then they share the Lord's Supper together. It's like the final, it all leads up to that. The Agape feast in the Corinthian church was indeed part of its worship. But serious abuses had become evident. The result was that these love feasts, Paul says in chapter 11, verse 17, and I quote, these love feasts do more harm than good. They do more harm than good, unquote, to the church. How could a love feast do more harm than good? Oh, well, we're about to find out. For example, cliques had emerged who only took notice of one another rather than fellowshipping with everyone. The rich members of the church brought lots of food and drink to be consumed by themselves and their friends, while the poorer members went hungry. Some of the rich were even getting drunk. Gone was the original intention of these feasts, where all food would be shared so that the poor at least got a decent meal every week. That was the original intention. But this is what it had become in Corinth. 
Now, Paul condemned the selfishness that had crept into these occasions. Look at chapter 11, verses 18 to 21, and I quote, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. End of quote. Just what was happening. These divisions at the meal were in fact symptomatic of the deeper problems in the church which Paul addresses in this letter. It was symptomatic of other issues that were going on in the church. Now notice Paul didn't tell them to stop holding these feasts. Rather, he told them that the abusers should be corrected. So in chapter 11, verse 22, and then 33 to 34, we read, and I quote, Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Down to 33. So then, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. End of quote. So with the abuses corrected, every time the Lord's Supper followed the agape feast, the people will be coming round the Lord's table in a spirit of fellowship and oneness rather than the Lord's Supper displaying the disparateness and division that was currently evident in the church. That's what's going on. Have you ever wondered what on earth Paul was talking about? When you read that passage, when you come to communion, this is what it's about. So Paul now proceeds to set out the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Familiar words to many of us in chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. Quote, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. End of quote. Now, of course, those words are very, very significant. We've already looked at them in some detail when we were doing study five. So you need to look back there if you want a refresher on that. Paul goes on to point out how important it is to prepare ourselves properly, to prepare ourselves properly to partake in the Lord's Supper. And not to do so is a very serious matter. As he says in verses 27 to 28, and I quote, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. End of quote. So you see, to come to the Lord's Supper after the agape feast in the shameful and self-centered manner displayed by some of the Corinthians during that meal is to approach the Lord's table in a way that is dishonoring to the crucified Christ. So there's more to it than, oh, I just need to make sure I've asked God to forgive me. Far more to it. Because it was coming in connection with this agape feast and everything that was going on there. Now, participating in a worthy manner means searching our own hearts. Yes, it does. And it means confessing the sins that we find there to the Lord before we partake the bread and wine. Because to do so with sin in our lives, is to treat the sacrifice of Christ with contempt, failing to recognize and respond 
to what Christ did for us on the cross. And the consequence of this is to bring God's chastening and discipline upon ourselves because we have not acted in a way that shows we understand and appreciate the importance of Christ's sacrifice for us. So in chapter 11 and verse 29 we read, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. End of quote. That's what that's all about. Now, this phrase about discerning the body of Christ may also mean acknowledging that we are all one, that we are united together in Christ. Because back in chapter 10, verse 17, we read, and I quote, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. So, it's about unity. It's an expression of unity, of being together when we come and take the bread and wine together. The Lord's Supper, a demonstration of the unity of the church, but it can only be so if our hearts are right with our brothers and sisters, as well as being right with God. Now, this was clearly not the case in the church at Corinth. And Paul points out to them the consequences of this state of affairs. Chapter 11, verse 30, quote, That is why many among you are weak and ill, and a number of you have fallen asleep. End of quote. So this suggests that God's judgment has come upon offenders in the form of physical illness, in some cases leading to death. Perhaps also it has come spiritually speaking, with offenders progressively becoming more and more dead to God. In other words, they've fallen asleep and become dead to God. Yet for Paul, this judgment is in fact a sign of God's mercy. This judgment is a sign of God's mercy. With such chastening being sent to stir us into putting things right. This is characteristic throughout the scriptures, actually, why God brings judgment. To stir up repentance. To stir up putting things right. And I quote from uh, chapter 11, verse 32. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Okay? And remember, whenever Paul talks about discipline, as we learned in the last study, restoration goes along with it. Discipline is for restoration. That's the purpose of it. Paul points out that such chastening can be avoided by examining our hearts on a regular basis. Back to verse 31, quote, But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. End of quote. In summary then, the Lord's Supper should be about the three R's. It should be about reflection, remorse, and rejoicing. Reflection, remorse, and rejoicing. Reflection, where we examine our hearts before God and allow his spirit to point out our sins. Remorse, where we confess our sins to God and ask his forgiveness and cleansing through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And rejoicing, where we give thanks to God that our relationship with him has been restored through Christ. And we celebrate the fact that we are united together with our fellow believers in his body, the church. Let's now consider then what Paul has to say about leadership in the church. Leadership in the church. Now in his first letter to Timothy... 
Paul shows how much he values the role of overseer or elder in the church. In chapter 3, verse 1 of his first letter to Timothy, he says, and I quote, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. A noble task. Now, in Greek culture, an overseer was the term used to describe an official who presided over a civic organization or a religious organization. They were called overseers. Now, elder was the equivalent word used by the Jews. And you'll see if you look at Acts 20, verses 17 and 28, and you look at Titus 1, 5 to 7, that Paul uses the two terms, overseer and elder, interchangeably. Now, elders were mature men with spiritual wisdom and experience. And Paul identifies the main duties of an overseer in the church as being, and I quote from 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 and 5, 17, they should be able to teach and to direct the affairs of the church. Able to teach and to direct the affairs of the church. And he also mentions that in 1 Timothy 3, 5. To be, they are also to be, quote from Acts 20, verse 28, they are to be shepherds of the church of God. Shepherds of the church of God who guard the church, who guard the flock is the picture. They guard them from error and false teaching by holding firm to sound doctrine and refuting those who oppose it. And you can see that in Acts 20, 28 to 31 and Titus 1 and verse 9. Now, as for the word deacon, the word deacon simply means one who serves, one who serves. And deacons are first mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And they were appointed to do exactly that, to serve. They were appointed to serve the church. And their service was a means by which the apostles and the elders could be freed, freed from the more mundane duties of running a church and therefore having the time to focus on the more spiritual development of the congregation devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of God's word. So that's why deacons were first brought in, to take that kind of everyday running of the church load off the elders whose focus was to be more of a spiritual ministry. And in 1 Timothy 3, 2-12, and Titus 1, 6-9, Paul sets out a list of qualifications that are required of those seeking to be elders or deacons in the church. I'll try and summarize these for you. An elder is to be self-controlled, hospitable, able to teach, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not a recent convert, have a good reputation with outsiders, not to be overbearing or quick-tempered, to be one who loves what is good and one who is upright, holy and disciplined. Both elders and deacons are to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, respectable, not given to drunkenness, someone who manages his own family well, and sees that his children obey him and don't run wild, and one who doesn't pursue dishonest gain, and who holds firmly to the true doctrines of the faith. And deacons are also to be sincere, and are to be tested to see if they are fit to serve. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's quite some list to fulfil. 
quite some list to fulfill. Now, some churches stick to it rigidly, maintaining that a potential elder or deacon must tick every single box on the list. Others show more flexibility on the grounds that some very able Christians could be disqualified from serving, thus depriving the church community of excellent ministry, which it desperately needs. This includes leniency being shown over the issue of their marriage history, except, of course, in cases of polygamy. Some churches will allow divorced men or women to serve, provided they are living in a committed relationship with their current spouse. Now, Paul always refers to elders as being male, which is not surprising, is it, given the patriarchal culture and attitudes of the time, of which we are now well aware. Now, some would say that this should continue, irrespective of changing culture and attitudes out there in society. Others would maintain the opposite point of view, saying that nowadays women are to be found in positions of leadership and authority in many cultures. So the same opportunity should be afforded to the women in the church, just as it is in society. And that women who seek such an office and meet all the qualification requirements have every right to put themselves forward for eldership. When it comes to deacons, however, there should not be any dispute. 1 Timothy 3.11, quote, In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything, end of quote. And the word translated, the women here, could mean the wives of deacons, or it could mean deaconesses, which implies a separate office, or simply female deacons. Writing to the Romans, as we've already seen, Paul commends them to them, the lady to whom he has entrusted the delivery of this letter. Romans 16.1, quote, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. The word deacon here refers to a Christian designated to serve with the elders of the church in a variety of ways. Now, there were, certainly were women who served the early church by visiting the sick, by helping the young women, and by seeing to the needs of the poor. And Paul writes that Phoebe had been, quote, a great help to many people, including me, Romans 16 and verse 2. Paul encourages the churches to respect and honour elders and deacons. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, quote, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. So elders and deacons are to be honoured and respected. Paul also tells Timothy, I quote, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. And that's 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. So that's elders and deacons. And in his letters to Timothy, Paul gives advice and instructions to help him in his role as pastor of the church in Ephesus. And the principles laid out here are still pertinent for those in leadership positions today. Paul warns Timothy to be on the lookout for false teaching and not to allow it to infiltrate the church. And here Paul refers specifically to some of the teachings of the Gnostics, which Timothy is to refute by instructing the congregation in the true doctrines of the Christian faith that he has espoused. You see, mistakenly, the Gnostics believe that the material world is evil, and mistakenly doing so, quote, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, 
which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. That's 1 Timothy 4, verses 3, 6 and 13. And in verse 7 of that same chapter, Paul urges Timothy, quote, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself, interesting phrase, train yourself to be godly. Godly, becoming godly isn't something that descends upon us from on high. Becoming godly is something we have to work at and we have to train ourselves to do. Now, not only is Timothy to, quote, command and teach, unquote, the truths of the faith, but Paul wants him to live them out in his life. So in chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 16, we read, and I quote, set an example, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. And Paul reminds Timothy of what happened when he was commissioned for God's work some years ago in Lystra. Verse 14, quote, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy, when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And you can see that, a record of that, in Acts 16, 1 to 3. And back in study 2, we did talk about that. Timothy is to be sensitive to the people in the church and to develop good and proper relationships with them. Chapter 5, 1 to 2, and I quote, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So being sensitive to people in the church with the aim of developing good and proper relationships. And then Paul gave Timothy detailed instructions about how to deal with widows in the church. This was a big problem in those days, a big problem. Why he gives these instructions is so that he could, and I quote from chapter 5, verse 3, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. And that's just, just need to unpack that slightly so you know what's going on. Widows who had families should be looked after by them, not by the church. Widows who had families should be looked after by them. Quote from chapter 5, verse 4 and 8. But if a widow has children or grandchildren... These should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. End of quote. Pretty strong instruction. Remember, there's no social care. Social care should be provided within the family. And actually, those, these verses cropped up when we were doing studies 8 and 9. Apparently, there was a list. There was a list of widows kept by the church in Ephesus. And those on the list were expected to devote themselves to prayer and good deeds, if you look at verses 5 and 10 there. So there were expectations of the widows. If they expected support from the church, they were to show themselves 
to be women of prayer and women of good deeds. Younger widows, interestingly, were not to be put on the list. You can probably guess why. Because they've got every chance of remarrying and should be encouraged to remarry. Look at verses 11 and 14. Others in the church who could afford to provide for some of the widows should do so. So the wealthy in the church have got a role to play in this, to support them, in order that, given its limited financial resources, quote from verse 16, the church can help those widows who are really in need. So that's what was going on with regard to this big problem of the number of widows that there were in the church. Now, Paul tells Timothy that the marks of a good leader include, first of all, impartiality. Secondly, giving careful thought before ordaining someone as an elder. And thirdly, purity of lifestyle, which serves as an example for the congregation. And so in verses 21 to 22, we read, quote, Do nothing out of favoritism. Be very, very careful in leadership not to be doing things out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. That's men appointing elders. And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. And Paul returns to this latter point in his second letter to Timothy, where he says in chapter 2, verse 22, quote, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. Also, Timothy is to avoid arguments and quarrelling, to be sensitive to people and to be faithful in teaching the truth. So, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, quote, Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And once again, Paul encourages Timothy to, quote, continue in what you have learned and be, have become convinced of the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Paul knew, as we've seen before in previous studies, that false teaching would continue to bedevil the church. And I use that word, that infinitive advisedly and purposefully. False teaching will continue to bedevil the church. So he exhorts Timothy in chapter 4, verses 2 to 5, quote, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather round them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. So a fairly comprehensive and far-reaching list of instructions there uh, given to Timothy as he pastors the church in Ephesus with all its problems. In summary then, at the end of these two studies on the church, the successful and effective church, as far as Paul is concerned, displays and features the following characteristics and qualities within its congregation. 
unity within diversity. Teamwork. Spiritual maturity. Humble service. Right relationships between members marked by inclusiveness, sensitivity, love, commitment, pastoral care and consideration for each other. The right balance between exercising freedom and behaving responsibly. Sacrificial giving. A firm grounding in the true doctrines of the faith. A discipline which restores both men and women properly valued, order and reverence in worship, and exemplary leadership. Such should our commitment to be to one another that, quote, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And Paul warns us never, never to lose our relationship with Christ. Christ is the head of the body. Churches which do this, which lose this relationship, are characterised by pride and false teaching. Its members become, quote, puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. That's 2 Colossians, sorry, Colossians 2 verses 18 to 19. Let's make sure that our church never loses its relationship with the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.